Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and wherever you, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back into town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Yeah, good morning and welcome. As you can see, we are in the middle of a series called Better Together, looking at how and why the gospel makes us better together, actually from the book of Ruth. And specifically, over this month, we're looking at how we can fulfill our mission to make disciples in a multi-ethnic and multi-generational context. And last week, if you were here, you saw where the power for that vision comes from in Ruth chapter 1. This week, as you can see, we're moving into Ruth chapter 2 to see how that kind of vision can come about. And I'll set this all up today with a question. Ask you, how can we be the kind of a church that loves across the lines of age and race together in a way that causes people to ask, what is happening in that place? And before I answer that question, here's why I want to answer that question and why we're talking about this today. Uh, When I look at our culture, and maybe when you look at uh, our culture, I don't know about you, but I see it fragmenting. 
in thousands of ways, large and small. You see advertisers, right, doing all kind of market research to thin slice and put on your homepage or on your, you know, whatever site you're on that really honed in, nuanced, individualized ad for you. I see, on the other hand, maybe radio stations, right, shrinking their format to only be about one thing in particular, right? You want to listen to this, you tune into that station, you listen to that, you tune into that station. Uh, You used to, back in the day, be able to hear all kind of stuff back to back to back. Radio used to be awesome. Because you used to get stuff like Michael Jackson, right? Uh, then, you know, Gloria Stefan, then Sting, then Boys to Men, followed by C&C Music Factory. And when they told you they were going to make you sweat till you bled, you believed them, right? Um, it was a glorious mix. And if you're under 30 here today and you're saying, man, that sounds kind of awesome. Well, you'd be right. It was. And thank God for Spotify today, right? Because... Our world doesn't do that kind of thing much on purpose anymore. Our world specializes in specialization. You got to have your kid in the right sport by age seven, right? Uh, Specializes in fragmentation, in individualization, in isolation to the max. I see families breaking, communities isolated, but when I look at the book of Ruth, I see something else when I look at the book of Ruth and I see the kind of a person we're introduced to here in chapter two. I see a vision of what the church, this church, can be because in chapter two, we're introduced to a kind of person who is fearless, a kind of a person who won't be stopped, can't be stopped, a kind of a person who risks everything for what he believes in. Ruth chapter 2, we're introduced to one of the great heroes in all the Bible, a man named Boaz. So let me ask, what does Boaz do that's so great here in the chapter? Well, here's what it is. Boaz shows us the heart, the heart of what's going to take, what it's going to take down on the inside of us to make disciples in Multi-ethnic, multi-generational context. Where is that? All right. Let me try to show you this morning the heart of Boaz in three ways. Three things going on here in his heart. First, he's got a heart that's quick to risk for what it believes. He's got a vision that looks across generational lines. And finally, a mind that remembers its true story. Be brief on one and two, spend most of my time. On three, let's begin here, number one, and uh, look at this. If you were here last week, then you know the story, so let me recap. Uh, In the book of Ruth, it takes place around 1300 BC in the time of the judges. There's a Jewish family that's forced to flee from Bethlehem, from their hometown, due to a massive famine in Israel. And so one family, one Jewish family, leaves and goes to a neighboring hostile nation, the land of Moab. But while they're there, tragedy strikes again. The, the head of the, of the family, a man by the name of Elimelech, dies. His two sons die, leaving alive only his widow Naomi and his two daughters-in-law. And so these three women, all widows, make the fateful decision to journey back to their homeland to try to find a way to survive somehow. But while they're on the way, while they're on the road, one of the daughters-in-law named Orpah turns back. She decided the journey ahead together was going to be too hard, so she goes back to her own home and family and culture. But the other daughter-in-law named Ruth 
who the book is about, of course, pledges to stay with Naomi to keep her alive no matter what. It's beautiful, one of the great speeches in all the Bible, and it's moving, but chapter one ends on a cliffhanger. It's like season one, right? Naomi and Ruth staggering back into Bethlehem after a decade back, and now season two picks up where season one leaves off. In chapter two, we see them doing the only thing they can do to survive, which is to send Root out, being young and strong of body, into the fields to eke out an existence and to glean grain to try to make bread to survive. And while Ruth is out literally scraping up grain off the ground, she wanders into the fields of a man named Boaz. And Boaz sees her And he asks sort of his right-hand man, his vice president, his overseer, the Bible calls him, this question, Boaz, verse 5, asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? In other words, who is she? And she's new, right? He's trying to figure out who she is. But by asking who she belongs to, Boaz is asking, what kind of a person is she really? To ask who a person belonged to, ask for their identity. But look, 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 look how Boaz's overseer answers him. It's actually not good. The overseer replied, verse six, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab. Oh, what's happening here? Well, if you have ever been stereotyped, put into a box, profiled, you know exactly what's going on here. Because when Boaz asks, who is she? The overseer doesn't give him a name first. He gives him a race. See, you don't say a Moabite from Moab. How about that? Moabite from Moab. Go figure. Moabites do come from Moab. Oh, what's going on here? He's mentioning it twice. This is the Republican from the Republican Party, Boaz. And you know how we feel about those people, the Democrat from the Democratic Party, right? Moabites come from Moab. Don't you remember Boaz? And by the way, Moab is the name of the place with the people we hate. Don't you remember what Moabites did to us? You can go look it up in the book, right? Boaz, we don't like the Moabites from Moab, Boaz, and that's the point. You only say it twice when you're trying to thinly disguise your disgust for someone. And you can almost hear the fear rising in his voice that comes from this kind of view because he won't quit talking about her. Oh, she came into the field, remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. In other words, one of those people came in today, Boaz, and we can't get rid of her. So what will Boaz do, huh? Is he going to kick her out, make her leave, tell her to get off his grass, you know, get off his property? Oh, I love it. I love it. He ignores, he ignores the profiling, the stereotyping of his overseer, goes immediately to Ruth and says, verse eight is critical. Whenever you read the words now or so in the Hebrew here, it means they've made a decision, a point of action. They've arrived at, they've risen up through a difficult internal decision and decided this is what it's gonna be. He said, so Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. 
I love these words. These are big words. These are bold words. These are brave words. These are beautiful words. And these are words that are at the bottom of a heart that longs to see people make disciples in multi-ethnic, multi-generational context. And here's why. Because Boaz is taking an enormous risk here. He is a prominent, wealthy landowner. He's got political connections, as we see. He's introduced to someone who could not be more different than him. He's a man at the top in his culture. She's a woman at the bottom. He's got power. She's got none. He's rich. She's poor. He has an estate and a business. Ruth is broke and borderline homeless. He is Jewish. She's from Moab. They're different in every way. And yet when pressed by his overseer, when reminded of the kind of person uh, she is, Boaz in less than half a second begins to risk his reputation reputation and later his wealth as we see to care for someone in a sense he had no business caring for and no one else cared for in his day why did you got to ask why did why does the life of one little person matter to him because of the final words thankfully the overseer says it says she is the moabite who came back from moab with naomi See, she mattered because of who she was related to. Ruth was connected to Naomi, who was Boaz's own family. Boaz's own family. And here's the point. That race, age, income, social status don't really matter. Those things fade away. They fall away when we can really see each other for who we really are. When we see that we're family. There's an amazing thing over in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes that I think that shows what's going on here in Boaz's heart in seed form. Over in 2 Corinthians, Paul here, he's defending his ministry against critics. When you think Paul, Paul's got to defend himself against, I thought Paul was, Paul was great. People didn't like what he had to say. Paul's defending his ministry against critics who accused him of missing the mark, of focusing too much on bringing people together in Jesus' name. See, Paul was the apostle to all the non-Jewish people, all the Gentiles, and his critics were always asking, Paul, why are you focusing on those Gentiles all the time and all those different races and pulling them together? But look at what Paul answers in 2 Corinthians 2.14. He said, Christ's love compels us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. All right. Now, I love this word, compel here. It's going on in Paul's heart, going on in Boaz's heart. And I want to show you just quick sort of an odd image of what the word compels looks like. There it is. What's happening in this picture? Well, there's cattle, right, being forced, being squeezed out through a narrow place. There's pressure from the cattle in the back that forces the cattle in the front to get out there, to go out into all the world. And that's what the word compel means. It means to be squeezed, pushed out, forced out. Paul's saying, there's a kind of love I got going on inside of me, down at the bottom of my heart, down at the bottom and foundation of my soul that compels me to risk my reputation in my ministry on seeing all kinds of people coming together in Jesus' name. And because of that, Paul is saying, I've got a vision not 
for a nice, safe little church where I just know the same people for 20 years who are exactly like me. But Paul's saying, I've got a vision for every kind of person to come to know Jesus. And therefore, he says, now I don't regard any person from a worldly point of view. What's a worldly point of view? Oh, a worldly point of view is what the overseer said. The overseer gave Boaz, oh, that person's too risky for you to know because of their skin color. That person's too risky for you to know because of how they voted. You know, we don't vote like those people, right? That person's risky to you because they're poor and they're homeless, right? They don't get you. They don't understand you. But Boaz is quick to risk for what he believes in, which is family, which is family. And when you believe that what you have in common with all the other people in this room, which is number one, their basic dignity, their basic humanity, their status as image bearers from the moment they were conceived in the womb, made by a loving creator. And number two, when you believe if they've received Jesus Christ, that means they also have the same spiritual DNA, the same blood running through their veins. When you believe that, you can know that what you have in common common is greater than any differences you may have below, right? And now you can begin to be quick to risk for people who aren't like you. Listen, I want to be quick to risk. I want a heart that's quick to risk for what I believe in. And I hope you would say amen. And what I believe in, like Boaz, is family. It's family, spiritual family. And so to all you who are here today, all my Latino hermanos y hermanas, Porque yo solamente hablo un poquito de español. <laughs> all my homeless brothers and sisters, all my black Asian brothers and sisters, listen, all the really old people in here over 40 who are like <laughs> ancient and decrepit, you know, already. And to all the whippersnappers here in this place, I'm going to say to you what Boaz said to Ruth. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. It's better for you here Together, our lives can be redeemed. Church, let's, number one, be quick to risk for what we believe in. Number two, Boaz also has a vision that looks across generational lines. And you only sort of pick it up in the background of the story. But part of the reason I believe that Boaz is so quick to help Ruth, bring her in, hire her in a way, is because of what you see all throughout the book. He's got all kinds of young men, young women in his employment. He's looking to coach them in life. You see him sort of bringing them into full status in the community. His whole business, yes, it's a way to make money and that's a good thing. But it's also to give these young people a way and a place to train and train for life. And when you've made your whole life about that, like Boaz, you're just going to be quick to bring someone into it as well, like Ruth. And I'm saying this morning, for us to be who we're called to be, we need that same kind of vision. And here's why. Because in this room today, we've got five distinct generations. You've got the, the builders, sort of what's called the greatest generation on the top. And you've got the, you know, the homelanders, Gen Z as they're called, on the bottom. In between, though, is sort of what most of us are, just the boomers, right? 
Gen Y, right? And Gen X. Yeah, go Gen Xers, right? But those three are sort of the main ones. And really, the thinking behind every generation, values, is they're just super different. That's why we need vision to reach across the aisle. Let me show you some of the ways people can be different. Because boomers, you know, you, you come here in here asking really pretty much, what can the young guy teach me? Right? You guys, and we're glad you invented Chick-fil-A. And we're glad, I'm glad for that, right? Uh, Because you're from the service economy. That's what you grew up in. And you want to know how can we get a product, some kind of content here. By contrast, we Xers come in here asking not what can we learn, but who understands me? (laughs) Do you feel me? We introduced that, right? I mean, we come from a relational economy. We put Starbucks on the map, baby. We can sit around and spend way too much money talking over expensive drinks, right? Aren't you glad we did, though, right? But Gen Y, by contrast, comes in not asking what can they learn or if they're understood, but if we can make them feel awesome about themselves because they're awesome, right? They don't come from a service economy, relational economy. They come from a transformational economy. Their birthday parties weren't Chuck E. Cheese. Right now, the video game thing comes to their house in the back of a truck. Everything's individualized, transformed around them. Apple computers, right? Chipotle, you get to pick all your ingredients. The pizza places where you pick all your stuff now, right? Why? Because they want the world transformed around them. And all this is great. I mean, the world's a better place because of Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, and Apple. You smile just hearing those words, right? We're better because of all the different generations that put those things on the map. So what if instead of looking either up or down the generational ladder and thinking, man, those old people don't get it or young folks are lazy today, right? We become something that the world says can exist, what if we were not just, hear me, multi-generational, but here's the word, intergenerational. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Being multi-generational, just having generations in a room, that's great, that's a start, but only connecting in your generation is sort of like this button. It's like the repeat button, right, on the iTunes playlist. You just get the same thing over and over, and that's kind of cool at first, but after a while, you kind of know all there is to know. But being intergenerational, going across generational lines, going up and down the ladder, that's like this button. That's the shuffle button, right? You're just going to get more interesting stuff than if you just hit repeat. And sure, there's a song in there you don't like or you think, man, what the heck is this? And the kids today and their music or what is that old stuff? But you'll never, the point is, find anything new or maybe even life-changing if you don't shuffle it up and get people in your life from a different generation. I love telling this story because it's just going to be forever true. Uh, when I got to this church, I uh, came back here to, to be the lead pastor in 2010. Almost every boomer here left. And so did their giving. Yeah, why? Because in large part, they didn't want to start over with the young guy, right? It's a service economy. They come in thinking, what can he teach me, give me, produce for me? And uh, they thought, I mean, I don't have any, anything to teach them. And to be realistic, I probably didn't, you know? But my friend, John Tribu, 
Love John Travu, a deacon here. John didn't care about what I could do for him, what I could teach him, or if he did, he didn't tell me. He, he came into this church with a guy before me, an older, better, far better Bible teacher. Any of us will probably ever be. But then the game changed, the script flipped, all that, and instead of the old guy, the veteran, leading the charge, he got the rookie in uh, who made a ton of rookie mistakes but every time I would meet with John it was the same thing oh you're doing great where you're gonna make it man I believe in you we've had some setbacks but it's gonna be great see John knew his role had changed he was looking to give and impart not just get something right see John saw the church through Jesus eyes what it could be with time and love and tenderness as the song goes right John hit shuffle in my life. We're all, we've all, I think, reaped the rewards from that. But here, here, here. Yeah, great. Uh, here's why we are together, though. Not just to be diverse together, but to make disciples together. And here's why. Here's why we're not just here to be diverse together, but to do something together, to make disciples together. And here's why. Because no matter what comes in life, no matter, like in the first century, no matter what Roman government is in charge, comes to power, lights you on fire, feeds you to lions for entertainment, executes you by the thousands like it did in Paul and Peter's day. No matter what, like in Augustine's day, some pagan foreign nation comes over the wall and sacks your culture like it did in Augustine's day, the great African theologian. No matter if the whole church around you in your day on Facebook and in blogs and writers seems to go crazy like it did in Martin Luther's lifetime, if we will go into the world and love and serve and sacrifice and believe and pray and give and love until people come to know the love that saves and the way that heals and the truth that frees and we teach them to follow and obey Jesus, we can have the same thing Paul, Augustine, and Luther had. The one thing no nation or government can stop. Hmm. We can have multi-generational discipleship. It's an unbeatable move. And in his own way, in his own day, Boaz was doing that. And that's what we've got to do in our day. And we'll give you a special opportunity to do it in a unique way. In a couple of weeks, we'll let you know about that. So Boaz has, first, a heart that's quick to risk for what he believes in. Second, a vision that goes beyond generational lines. But number three, and I want to major in this one here. He's got a mind that remembers its true story. You say, what's that? Let me show you. Last week we saw that one of the most amazing things about the book of Ruth is that when we get to the end of the book, we see that Ruth and Boaz are married and they they have a child and that child has a child who has a child named David who grows up to be Israel's greatest king. But what's even more amazing about it is that that's not where Ruth's story stops. Because in the first book of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew begins to list the ancestors of Jesus, which was a way of creating a first century resume, Matthew did what no one in his day did. He listed women in Jesus's resume and his storyline. And see, in listing a person's ancestors, it was a way of saying, if you want to know who this person is in the present, go look, go talk with that person in their past. And incredibly, Matthew lists five different women in Jesus's story, in his line. And one of them is Ruth. And we saw that last week, but that's 
not the only woman listed from this time and place and story in Scripture. Because right before Matthew tells you about Ruth, Matthew 1, he also lists another incredible woman in the line of Jesus. Matthew puts it like this. Salmon was the father of Boaz, uh uh-oh, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obad, mother was Ruth, Obad, Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. And who was Rahab? Rahab, like Ruth, was also an outsider to the nation of Israel. We read in the book of Judges, Ruth, excuse me, Rahab was a citizen of the city of Jericho, a city against which God had promised to bring judgment, another story. But Rahab was more than just a racial outsider. She was a sexual outcast as well. Because in the book of Joshua, we read that Rahab was actually a prostitute. She sold her body to men for money. Oh, but even though it didn't look like it on the outside, on the inside, Rahab was desperate for a way out of her own life. And when two Jewish spies come to the city to learn about it, they tell her that because of the city's wickedness, God is going to bring judgment against it. And Rahab senses her moment. She commits her life to, she puts her faith. You can see it in the one true God to be her savior, to be her deliverer. And she asks for her life and for her family's life to be remembered and spared when the city's judged. And so these Jewish spies hatch a daring plan. They tell her to leave a red, blood-colored, scarlet rope hanging outside her window, and they swear that when they return, she and her family will be spared. And it happens. Later, Joshua 6.25 says that Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her Because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. What had happened? Oh, here's what. Rahab, a religious and racial outsider, a sexual outcast, is brought into the covenant faith community, and she puts down roots. She marries a Jewish man named Salmon. Together they raise the future leader of his community, a man named Boaz. Now, flash forward 60 years later, and when Boaz looks at Ruth, an outsider stumbling into his field, walking in decades later, what does he see? What's he seeing? Oh, he's seeing his own story once more. He remembers, oh, he wouldn't even be there. He wouldn't even be alive if it weren't for the forgiving and the redeeming and the inclusive grace of God extended to his mother in her hour of need and desperation. And so when Boaz says to her, oh, daughter, come glean in these fields. Don't go away from here. Find your safety here. I'll provide for you and your family. All he is saying is what has been said to his mother and to his own family. See, Boaz hasn't forgotten the grace shown to him and his family that changed him forever. Boaz is remembering his own story, his own life from a pagan, outsider, sexually outcast mother. He doesn't just say when he looks at Ruth, oh, I've made me rich. What I have, I deserve. I'm on top because of my own merit. My own hands have brought me my privilege and position. No, he remembers he's only there by 
grace. And let me tell you why this kind of thinking isn't just beautiful, but why it's crucial, why it's essential. And here's why. Because the tendency of human hearts over time is to forget their true story. We forget that what we have is by sheer grace. And God knows this is the tendency of the human heart, which is why he actually commanded his people just before they went into their promised land to do one thing back in the book of Deuteronomy. When they came, he said, my people, when you come up to give your offering to the priest and you've got your money and you've got your stuff and you're remembering how I've blessed you and you stand before the priest, here are the words you are to say to him. Deuteronomy 26, 5. God said, then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. Oh, what's God doing here? He here, he is commanding them to remember their true story, where they came from. He's commanding them to remember forever that they were also outsiders at one point. They weren't part of his family at one point. They all had a humble beginning and whatever they have is by the gift and grace of almighty God. And seeing what is at the bottom of every healthy relationship you'll have, it's at the bottom of your marriage covenant. If you're married today, what fuels the vision for this church is a mind that remembers its true story. Because if you're not careful over time, you can grow. I can grow. We can grow to become the overseer in the book, right? He forgot his story. He forgot he was an outsider only one generation before. He forgot his father was a wandering Aramean. He forgot what God did to rescue his people. But Boaz is better because he remembers not only his father was a wandering Aramean, but that his mother was a pagan prostitute. Look at mom. Look at dad. Nothing to stand on before God. Nothing to put his hope or boast in. And therefore, when he is given the opportunity to extend himself and redeem a broken life, and when he looks and sees, hear this, the evidence of brokenness in his culture, his mind flashes back. And friend, when your mind flashes back, your heart opens up and your world gets bigger and you're able to say, I will take you, a foreigner, into my life, someone different than who I am racially into my life, and I will give out of my need for you. See, See, Boaz remembers his story and remembering his story compels him to reach across racial and generational lines. Do you know what I believe, what will heal our nation? It's this, remembering our true story. Because your true story, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you're not, you can skip this next part, man, just listen in. But if you're a Christian, your true story is not that your parents were from this place or that, that you grew up here, someone brought you here, you came from money or you didn't, although that's part of your story and important too. No, your true story, and hear me, is that your father 
was a wandering Arab man named Abraham who had nothing. His father was an idol worshiper, and therefore that's what's passed down in your life. And he had Isaac, who had Jacob, who went down into Egypt, and God made them somebody and makes us something. And God, who was rich in mercy, thus spoke to Abraham and saved him and gave him a family who would one day produce the ultimate outsider, Jesus, who through his own blood, who through the scarlet rope of his life that hangs outside the walls and window of this world, you can hang on to today. You can be saved. You can be redeemed by that. Now he's enabled all who will call on his name to not only be spared the just wrath of God against their life, but now you can, I, we can be brought into a new family, a new covenant community, given new rights, a new name, a new people, a new family. See, your father, my father, our family, it's the same in Jesus. Our father was a wandering air man, a nobody, that God made a somebody so that anybody could be a part of that family and that story. And what heals hearts and brings us together is when we remember, church, our true story. Because when you remember your true story, that it's only by grace you're saved, you can't hate, you can't discriminate, you can't turn away. Because like Boaz, you remember who you are. That was you. When you remember your true story, it humbles you. It just has to. When you remember your true story, you don't turn away from the hurt of the hearts and the plight of people in your community. See, the overseer, he forgot who he was and his heart got proud and whenever I hear somebody ask man why do you focus so much on young people that's the words of the overseer right why do you focus so much on the homeless people why do you focus on caring for people in other nations when we've got needs here when someone asks you why should we focus on bringing people of different backgrounds in today or why are we going to three services right it's inconvenient for me I had my lunch plans down on a Sunday Morgan None of you have said that. <laughs> Maybe you've thought that. I hear a voice that's forgotten the grace of God. I hear a voice that says, oh, it would just be easier if we didn't work, work, work to redeem brokenness. I hear a voice. Those words are for someone at the top, yeah. not the bottom. Because people at the bottom never say, oh, you should just forget about including me. No one says that at the bottom. The overseer's words are the words of the respectable, the one who's got money, plays it safe in life. The overseer's words are the words of someone because they've forgotten their true story. They've forgotten they were also racial outsiders to the grace of God. Overseer says, we should just stick to our own kind. Overseer says, leave, man, leave the Moabites alone, Boaz. You're missing the point of what we've got going on here. But Boaz thought, missing the point, the whole point of what I have is to give away what I've received and what I have received, what you've received is to be brought in and included in the covenant family of God by sheer grace. Boaz's heart was so big because he remembered his true story. His heart wasn't shriveled up and dead and dying. When you remember your true story, you automatically move towards people who are different than you. And you can say to Ruth, people like Ruth, what Boaz said to her, don't go away from here. Don't go away from here. Come stay here. It'll be better for you here. I will say to you, don't go away from here. Stay. Our lives are going to be redeemed here. I believe that. 
what do we need? We need, number one, a heart that's quick to risk for what we believe in. Number two, a vision that looks across generational lines. And number three, a mind that remembers its true story.